Our service in song is always such an uplifting, encouraging time to be able to mouth the words that are so meaningful and so very enriching in so many ways. And this evening, as we have already sung these very compelling and moving songs, we do have opportunity for the next few moments to give a consideration to another one of those sections or books in the Bible. As you probably can tell from the title, even as what I mentioned earlier this morning, we are in the book of Judges in our current reading, and tonight the spotlight will be cast on that book of Judges. I hope you'll be turning there with me as we refer to a few of the passages found in that very interesting Old Testament book. As you can perhaps tell from these introductory thoughts, the book of Judges does occupy a very unusual set of ideas in some regards. That bottom part of that particular slide does highlight for us this history of the book of Judges. The book of Judges spans, in terms of the totality of its length, somewhat over 350 years. That puts us to appreciate the fact that from the time the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage until ultimately, much later in the Old Testament, Judges really forms a rather substantial section time-wise to that, to that whole period. But it's interesting in that our picture, the portrait that we conclude from Judges, quite frankly, isn't always a very bright one, is it? It's often very dim, it's very cloudy, it's often encumbered with ungodliness, and yet... There are so many lessons to be extracted and learned and applied. I hope tonight, in the few moments we have at least, we can at least appreciate some of them and be far better servants to the Lord because of it. You'll also notice perhaps one final thought. It does seem interesting in light of what we studied just recently, the book of Joshua. Here it was, the children of Israel had left Egypt. Finally, after 40 years arriving at the land of promise, they now, under the leadership of Joshua, had crossed the Jordan River, entered into that land. Here is the land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the land that's abundant, bountiful, and rich. At that point, one might think, with the people now in the land God had promised them, with them originating and arriving at this place, could it have been any better for them? Shouldn't this have been the absolute grandeur and epitome of all that one could have wished? Quite frankly, the answer might have been yes, but the book of Judges paints a very different picture. I would ask you to begin to unfold with me this, the interesting scenes of Judges, and let's see why it was that it was not quite as pristine as it might have been on this particular slide. The book of Judges seems to divide naturally into three sections. The first part is somewhat of an introduction, highlighting the latter days of Joshua and the features that are about to take place in Judges. We notice at the very outset of that character, that introduction makes mention of a few of the notable names. But then the book launches into its major section, which is a section involving, quite frankly, oppression and deliverance. And by that we mean oppression of God's people. Finally, there is somewhat of an appendix, an, an epilogue, if you will. And that closing appendix really encompasses some five chapters and it highlights the rather sad saga of a people who were far from God. Now, as you can probably already tell, Judges has some dark spots within it and some times that really aren't all that pleasing in terms of those that love the Lord. But nonetheless, so much to be gleaned and learned. 
It is with that in mind, let's proceed now to map out the understanding of the text that Brother Eddie read earlier. It all begins in chapter 1. In that opening chapter, we find a very clear statement relating to the people's disobedience. God had told them under Moses to, in fact, make sure to encompass the land, to drive out those inhabitants that were already there and occupied and remain completely separated from the evil influences of those idolatrous, pagan, heathen peoples. And yet, several times in chapter 1, the statement is made, they did not drive out the inhabitants. Time and time again, verse 19, verse 21, verse 27, verses 29 to 34, all of them explicitly affirm that one tribe after another failed to do the very thing that God had commanded. It's not that difficult to appreciate the fact that because of that disobedience, problems and troubles are going to abound. And so it was because they were influenced by those foreigners, those who didn't appreciate God and who were not attracted and drawn to Him. Quite often they influenced Israel rather than Israel influencing them. No wonder in light of those things you begin to see the paramount question that was asked in chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with these interesting words. God had given direction to an angel to present himself before the children of Israel, and the angel asked an amazingly simple question. To build up to that question, God had encouraged or at least commanded the angel to make observation and note of the fact that God had made a covenant with the children of Israel. But then he said in verse number 2 that they hadn't been faithful to it, and then he asked this haunting question, Why have ye done this? Can any sinner really offer a good answer to that question? Why have you done this? You'll notice they didn't have a good answer. God had commanded relative to casting out the inhabitants of the land. He had commanded relative to their faithfulness to the covenant He had given. And He simply asked, why have you been disobedient? They had no good answer as noted. And you'll notice in light of that, here are the issues that follow. The book of Judges is without a doubt the roller coaster book in the Bible. If you've ever ridden a roller coaster, you have a sense of what it involves. Up and down, left and right, all of course designed to for those that find thrill in that to provide that adrenaline rush and the thrill that goes with it. You'll notice in the book of Judges, the pattern follows like this, time after time. Let's look at the first example. We find in chapter number 3, the people did evil. They distanced themselves from the commandments of God and proceeded to follow the influences of those nations about them as they engaged in that ungodliness and the evil that goes with it. God allowed enemies, in this case the Mesopotamians, to overwhelm them. And the children of Israel found themselves oppressed by the Mesopotamians, a people for some eight very challenging and difficult years. During that time, we now begin to see they finally did come to their senses. They understood the fact that their problems were because of their own unfaithfulness and they proceeded to cry out unto God. God heard their plea and raised up a deliverer, a judge if you please, a man named Othniel. We notice that Othniel was able to deliver them from the oppression of the Mesopotamians. 
a nation that was led by a rather unusual king named Catalaomer. You might appreciate that among other things, deliverance was now theirs to be enjoyed for some four decades as a result of the efforts and the deliverance granted to them. But the pattern has been an interesting one so far. Problems arose because we see the oppression came from their disobedience. God heard their plea and raised up a deliverer. And then we notice ultimately, example number two, they proceeded to do evil again. After a period of time, they forgot the influence of Othniel. They forgot the lessons that were supposed to have been learned. And they proceeded again to distance themselves from the faithfulness of the Old Testament covenant. In that condition, in that predicament, we notice one more time an enemy was raised up. God allowed them to be taken and made oppressive by the Moabites. For 18 lengthy years, the people were sub subjected to this oppression. As they were subjected to it, we notice again, they finally did come to their senses. They recognized the source of their difficulties. They cried out unto God, and God raised up a deliverer, a judge by the name of Ehud. This was that rather unforgettable scene when a very fat Moabite king named Eglon found himself in a very difficult and challenging situation. In fact, Ehud killed him. But be that as it may, Ehud did bring deliverance. He did free them from the oppressiveness of these Moabites. And you'll notice for 80 long years, Moab was no problem to the children of Israel. Two times we've seen the pattern and the roller coaster is just getting started. As you can now imagine, we come to example number three. This time is much briefer in the sacred text. In verse 31 of Judges 3, we have mention of Shamgar, who also, in fact, with an ox goad, did a great service to the children of Israel, delivering them from portions thereof, at least from the Philistine overlords. And with that, we notice that chapter 3 closes and three judges have been mentioned. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. As the roller coaster swings forward... We now come to the next chapter and notice the pattern. The people again proceeded to do that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And one more time, God allowed them to be oppressed by an enemy nation. This time, you'll appreciate that it was the Canaanites. It's amazing to appreciate God's control over these nations. Be it the Moabites, be it the Mesopotamians, be it the Canaanites, they are each are subjected to the great will of the all-powerful God of heaven. This time the Canaanites come and oppress the children of Israel for 20 years. In that oppressiveness again, they finally do recognize the source of their difficulties. They cry out unto God and God raises up a woman named Deborah. She this time was the one recognized as the judge, if you please, the deliverer. And she, along with Barak, they in fact delivered the children of Israel, delivering them from these Canaanite oppressors. Chapter number 5 is in fact a song. It was a song of celebration and deliverance because of the victory that they had enjoyed over the Canaanites. As that song comes to its conclusion, we notice the poetic way in which reference is made to the power of God seen in that event. The 40 years of deliverance that was enjoyed from these Canaanites brings us to the next turn on the roller coaster. One more time, we notice several judges are mentioned. 
But to lead up to it, we have, in fact, the judge seems to occupy one of the major references in the, in the entire book. The people, again, did evil in sight of God. They didn't pay enough attention and determination and perseverance to what was attempted to be set before them. And as a result, we notice in that evil, they were oppressed one more time, this time by the Midianites. A group of people, really, quite frankly, from a far distant south of where the children of Israel were in fact dwelling. But nonetheless, these Moabites oppressed them, as you can see, for some seven years. And God raised up Gideon this time as the judge of deliverance from these difficult oppressions. With the efforts of Gideon, you'll notice 40 years of, again, freedom from these Midianites was granted by God to them. The pattern is already evident beyond anything else that I need to say. But you'll notice three other judges are quickly mentioned. We have Abimelech, Tola, and Jair. The difficulties surrounding each time and their separation from God due to evil was met by God's raising up of a, of a deliverer, a judge. That does bring us to appreciate the pattern and continuance. The people again do evil as if we should be surprised. You'll notice this time in the evil they do, God raises up the Ammonites, that land that rested, you might remember, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. This particular nation, too, was under the control of God, though Gentile they were. God raised them up. They oppressed for 18 years the children of Israel. One more time, God, hearing their pleas when they finally understood, God raised up a gentleman named Jephthah. Although other things might come to our mind as we reflect upon Jephthah, we nonetheless appreciate the deliverance lasted some 31 years from these nations, the Ammonites. At this point, you can begin to see that three more quick mention is made of some additional judges. You'll appreciate their names are Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. And finally, we come to one of the last episodes because, as you well remember with me, one of the better-known judges, I suppose, is yet to come. The people again did evil in the sight of God. They chose to distance themselves. They forgot the blessings of God. They forgot the covenant that He had made with them. And in that evil, God raised up the Philistines. This was a very strong and powerful oppression. The Philistines were known as very warlike people, and they often had many elements of military matter that were not as available to the children of Israel. You'll notice for some 40 years, they oppressed the children of Israel. Four long decades. And beyond that, you'll notice God raised up Samson, that one known for his strength, the one known to be able to do many things that a normal, regular man would not be able to do. However, he too often acted somewhat foolishly. And in so doing, you'll notice ultimately the deliverance that he brought of some 20 years is clouded by the way his own life ended and by the character of what he ultimately brought to his own family. You'll notice that some of these final remarks might be made. These final remarks hinging on the final few books, final few chapters of this book. For therein we appreciate that it really is one of the darkest sections of reading in all the Old Testament. Here's a listing of some of what you find. 
the people lapsed into great disrespect for the priesthood. They had little, if any, regard to the covenant law that God had given through Moses at Sinai. And we begin to see morality dip to the lowest ebb that we read of almost anywhere in the Old Testament. To be specific, we find homosexuality running rampant, Judges chapter 19. We find furthermore fornication openly practiced, again opening verses of Judges 19. We come face to face with rape and murder. All of that we see in the last few chapters of Judges. No wonder we appreciate the fact that God is not endorsing these things. He's giving us a true reflection of what the people were doing. God never approved any such behavior. And yet you notice as it all comes to an end, finally even civil war begins to rage amongst the tribes of Israel. Tribes fighting with themselves. Haven't they fallen far from where they could have been? They could have rested on the greatest pedestal arguably ever in the history of the world until the time of Jesus. What a special people they really were and could have been. And yet, look at the kind of life that existed in the children of Israel. The kind of things that went unchecked, at least by and large. As you give thought to that, two verses that we'll use to lead us to the next section of our lesson this evening. Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25. The problem, what was it? What's the cause? How does one properly use a lens to understand what's the main feature causing all of these difficulties? The fact of the evil they were doing. The fact of the need for these judges. The character of the moral problems that ended the book. Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25 says, There was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When they degenerated to the point of wishing no one to give them instruction, leadership, guidance in any way, they fell as far as that which we've noted so far. May we be quick to say that any group of people that has that same mentality is going to suffer the same kinds of problems. We are reaping some of those same bitter ends brought about from the seed sown in our own land. When individuals do not respect the ultimate authority and they want to do what's right in their own eyes, these things are always going to result. They're always going to be coincident with them. Is it any wonder then that we need to now cast a spotlight back on some of the intermediate matters? See what were some of the things God did point out to them and how that these issues can be so meaningful even for you and for me today. As we do that, I would point out that a key word that seems to be very descriptive from both perspectives of the matters of problems perhaps is the very word leadership. I'd like to ask you to think with me in the following way. In Judges chapter 2, we encounter some rather amazing language. Language that reads like this. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. That is a statement that's very positive, isn't it? A statement that hearkens us to understand what influence Joshua had 
Because we notice in the days of Joshua and in the days of that next generation, the ones influenced by Joshua, it says they served the Lord all those days. And you'll notice that all was well then. It seems as if the issues were positive, prosperity was enjoyed, bounty of the land was appreciated, and they understood the source of their blessings. And as they understood those sources and directed the attention appropriately, we noticed that there weren't issues like ended the book. It is for those reasons we appreciate. We long and we even yearn as we read the book of Judges for a judge to begin some kind of program by which he could instill within them a perseverance, a love for the truth of God, and an understanding of what it would mean to fall back again into the folly of disobedience. But we never find it. We go from one valley to the next crest, time and again through this roller coaster of judges, always hoping the people will learn, hoping that they will not fall back into the same mistakes that clouded their judgment some decades earlier, and yet it never seems to happen. It's always the same problems. It's always the same result. It's always another oppression. It's always, again, the need for a judge. No wonder these kind of statements seem so appropriate. They soon fell back into doing what human nature, without any guidance, seemed to encourage. There was no king in Israel. That statement we might appreciate. It is true there had not yet been appointed a physical king. That wouldn't come until 1 Samuel chapter 9. When the people requested that king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the appointment of Saul in the very next chapter, but this in many ways is a broader and more profound statement. There was no king in Israel, not only a physical one on the throne. There was also no desire to follow the king in heaven. They weren't interested in following that covenant they had agreed to keep with Moses. They weren't interested in following the one Joshua encouraged upon them. They were a people who wanted to be loose from all things that would restrain them, all things that would force them to do that which was not to their liking. And in so doing, what a sad and sordid state that it was. It may well be as you come to the next part, you and I are in position to seek some applications. Applications that quite frankly touch all of us in a very compelling way. After all, wasn't it true that the problems that we find in the book of Judges can be approached from two different perspectives? On the one hand, we can't lay all the blame upon the judges. Much of it has to fall on the people. Why don't we devote the remainder of our time this evening and think about it from both those perspectives and to ask in what way can you and I learn from those matters and use them in a vital way to improve ourselves, the congregation here at Pippin, as well as our influence in the church wherever we may have opportunity to bring that influence. The comments at the bottom of that slide do remind us that leadership all throughout the sacred text and from the very dawn of time, it has been a matter that's important. Leadership is a part of the plan of God, isn't it? When the people had no king among them and they wanted to be unrestrained in every way, that was not a wholesome desire. Every person needs leadership. 
All of us need appropriate guidance and we need appropriate instruction to remind us and assist us on that narrow pathway that leads to eternal glory. Matthew 7 verses 13 and following. In this instance, no doubt, we can appreciate that surely in the church we have that principal leader, the one who is so often highlighted. Colossians 1.18, doesn't it remind us, He, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. We recognize there is a head to the church. We are not at liberty to do what we want and claim that Christ should be happy with it. He'll be happy with it only so long as we submit fully to His authority and do that which is His bidding. For isn't it true, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Verse 17 of Colossians chapter 3. The headship of Christ naturally leads to these appreciations. Within local congregations, it is that plan of God that there be bishops appointed. Many particular descriptive names are found in the New Testament. They're called overseers, they're called elders, they're called bishops, they're called presbyters. All of them highlight before us the fact that these men are such that qualifications are to be met. Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And in so doing, they are given some powerful responsibility. Responsibility that perhaps is much like this. I've only quickly made mention of these three verses. But each of us are commanded to obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account thereof, and that they may do it with joy and not with grief. When a man takes upon himself to accept that position of an elder, we recognize from verses including that one that he, among other things, of course, at the day of judgment, will give account for the way in which that overseership has been carried out, for the way in which the eldership and the way that he took care of it. You'll also notice that this other verse quickly reminds us that they are not given the liberty and freedom to do what they wish, for they too, aren't we told that in Titus 1 verse 9, that they too are commanded to give diligence to be faithful to the Word. That's the book they use to make their decisions and the book they use to assist them by great prayer and consideration to lead the flock in the way that it should go. You'll notice that that last verse mentioned, Acts chapter 20. Isn't it significant that when Paul met with the elders of the church in Ephesus, here was a congregation who themselves had appointed elders. And when Paul met with them, had conference with them, gave them lasting instruction. It was in verse 32 that he had previously forewarned them that there were going to be problems and difficulties. Grievous wolves are going to come in not sparing the flock. They are going to be bent on problems and destruction and wreaking havoc. To those men, Paul said this, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace that she'll be able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. Paul gave them commendation, didn't he, with respect to the Word of God, for it is only in that way that they could themselves guide their own lives properly, but also lead that flock in the only way that God would find pleasing. 
as you give thought with me to these elders, these bishops, you'll notice by the very fact of the names that they're called and the descriptions given to them, they are to be men of both leadership, vision, wisdom, and guidance as they, in fact, seek to embody within their lives that which is the means of God and to encourage it in the lives of those that are their flock. You'll notice that some of these verses quickly to be noted. In Acts 20, verse 28, same paragraph. Again, those elders of the church in Ephesus, Paul to them wrote, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Notice they're told to oversee. That highlights that thought of vision. It highlights that thought of leadership and direction. Peter himself was an elder. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And in those verses, even he is told that as these leaders, these elders take that position of leadership, they don't do it in terms of personally wanting the glory. They do it rather because they follow the chief shepherd, that chief shepherd being Jesus Christ our Lord. As they take the oversight of the flock, they don't do it for reasons of filthy lucre. They don't do it for reasons of personal satisfaction or greed. They do it because of their love for the truth. And they do it because of their love for the souls of those who are, of course, their flock. Maybe one final passage to be noted is the way in which Peter makes reference to that eldership in 1 Peter 5 verse 2. As he speaks about the overwhelming feature of the dedication of their leadership, he speaks of it again from a very personal standpoint. Maybe that personal character is then highlighted as we look at some more features of these very issue, of these great interesting issues. Doesn't it take us back to the scenes of Gideon briefly? We noted earlier in the lesson this evening about that judge named Gideon and how that God in chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Judges raised him up to be a deliverer. And yet we notice that in Gideon's life, there were some issues and there were some matters and it required great diligence on Gideon's part. Diligence so interesting that perhaps these summary statements are appropriate. You may recall that when Gideon was first appointed... He was a gentleman who himself had the influence of a family who was not supportive. Gideon's dad was an idolater. Gideon's own family was wholeheartedly given to idolatry, and yet God came to Gideon and gave him instruction and orders whereby he should tear down his dad's own idolatrous image. Under the cloak of darkness, Gideon did what God commanded. And yet when morning arose and they saw that the very matter, the idolatrous image had been destroyed, Gideon not only made statement about what he did, he affirmed who it was that gave him that order. Doesn't that speak about the confidence with which Gideon himself had by that point been assured? We can be thankful for the confidence of men who lead in that position as an elder. And they lead knowing the statements of the Word of God. And they lead knowing that those statements are the one and only pattern. That one and only pattern perhaps brings us to this observation. Gideon relied upon the Word of God. Even when there were others that began to question, even when there were some in the community, again in the book of Gideon, who began to question, Gideon stood strong and firm, and we begin to see an amazing transformation.
In fact, it does make a very interesting study, and we'll not have time to develop it this evening. When God first appointed Gideon, we find a man who appeared to be somewhat timid. He appeared to be a gentleman who at that point was rather unassured of himself. He questioned many things. But by the time we reach the end of chapter 7 and on into chapter 8, we find one who could be a very impressive leader, not only of those near, but even of those who previously had been an enemy. What a transformation the Word of God can make. Maybe all of us can then come and appreciate that we also begin to see that there's much to be gleaned even by all of us who are not elders. Because as we learned earlier, some of the fault, in fact a fair amount of it, lay not with the leadership but with the people of Israel themselves. Here was a people who had been instructed in appropriate ways, but they soon forgot the messages of truth. They became more interested in other matters, whatever they may have been. Consider with me some of these thoughts, if you would. The people should have been more committed to the things of God. They ought to have been closer to that which God delivered to them. After all, Joshua had led them well, and the next generation had done the same. But then... But then, we find this roller coaster in the book of Judges. For a period of time, they would enjoy freedom, liberty, and the blessings of God, but then they would lapse in their casualness and in their indifference and in their apathy away from it. That leads me as well as all of us, I'm sure, to say that is one of the greatest problems that the church in any era seems to face, indifference and apathy. We take for granted the blessings we have. We are able to meet on the Lord's day without any fear of problem or difficulty. We enjoy all the blessings that God so richly gives us, but then we soon become lackadaisical and we begin to forget. It only takes one generation, only one. Look what happened here. Faithful in Joshua's day and even the next one, but then from that point forward... One generation is all it took. No wonder it's so vital, so utterly necessary and essential to instill within the next generation the commitment you and I enjoy to God so that they will never forget, so that they can do the same for their children and the next generations to follow, so that the church can be mighty and that it shall grow. It is certainly true that some of these statements very quickly follow. The roller coaster in Judges is quite frankly not a pretty thing to read. Think of the hardship that came to those that had to endure the oppression. And think about those years in which they found themselves in that condition, finally becoming to the point of understanding what brought them there. Then they'd cry unto God and God would free them, deliver them, raise up a judge. What about your steadfastness and mine? How committed are you and I? What if the day were to come when there were people at the door refusing to allow us to enter? What if the time did come that our government, utter otherwise, would take a dim view toward assembly? Would our commitment remain as strong or would we blow with the wind and remain unfaithful? Those are personal questions. I trust we each would be faithful until death, Revelation 2 verse 10. 
I trust you and I each would remain in steadfastness as commanded in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That steadfastness is an issue that finds itself so often encouraged within the pages of the New Testament. That text in the Corinthian letter brings us to 2 Peter 1, verse 10. On that occasion, we find near the end of that very powerful paragraph opening the book of 2 Peter, that Peter admonished those that were his hearers in ways like these. We remember that there is a list of the so-called Christian graces, and we are each admonished to incorporate these into life. But then he says in verse 10 and verse 11, that if we shall do so, that there will be an abundant entrance administered to you and me into the everlasting realms of glory. And along the way, he asserted, make your calling and election sure. S-U-R-E. Is yours and mine sure? Is it certain as it ought to be? Perhaps finally, you notice that very encompassing passage in Hebrews 3.14 the Hebrew letter again written to these individuals who needed admonishment because quite frankly they were beginning to steer aside from the truth of God. And yet in verse 14, they're admonished to rethink that and revisit their steadfastness and never veer from it. I trust that as we reflect on judges, we have found a great blessing in terms of admonishment to you and me and also those that would be our leaders. Maybe one final thought. What a danger we find, not just in Judges, but many places in the book of God, the dangers of what happens when we fall from our steadfastness. Maybe as we come to this concluding thought, the final slide of our study this evening, we have been reminded in the book of Judges about a number of questions. I'd like to ask you to summarize them with those three. Judges 2.2, 2, why have you done this? Anyone who is in a position of disobedience, why have you done this? Is there ever a good reason for disobeying God? But then in Judges 8.23, when the time came that there was an appointment or at least an individual who others desired to be a leader, the statement was made, only God will be your leader. God is to be the main king of your life and mine. And with that kingship, we finally come to the sad statement of, again, Judges 17, 6. No king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We've applied some of these things from the days of the judges to your life and mine in the church of our Lord and have found that leadership is vital, but followership is just as important. May you and I be diligent followers seeking to follow the lead of that which we see in the wonderful Word of God. But as always, the question of invitation is certainly an appropriate one. If you and I find ourselves at this moment distanced from God, away from the fold of safety, why are we in that condition? It isn't God's will we be there. It isn't Jesus' will. He went to the cross to die that I might not be there. And the same for you. So if you find yourself in that condition, tonight would be a perfect opportunity to make things right between you and your God. This hymn of encouragement has been chosen and we'll be delighted to stand and sing and offer assistance to anyone that might be in position to request it. We would only ask you let us know in the way that we can.
That plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with the Master at some point, but you have not been faithful to that calling, why not tonight come back to that first love, Revelation 2.5? If we could be of help to you, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?